This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, beginning in the 17th chapter, the 20th verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that we may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Lord Christ. Before I begin this morning, I want to uh, ask your prayers on behalf of our rector. He's unfortunately come down with a bug that's been going around and it's been taking down so many of my students like flies, but we are praying for his speedy recovery. And in the meantime, while the rector is away, the curate will play. And my name is Father Creighton Friedrich, and I'm the curate for student ministry here at Christchurch. And of course, by play, I mean that uh, the curate hurriedly prepares a sermon on Saturday afternoon after he gets that phone call. But uh, it is such a pleasure to be uh, with you this morning and worship with you this morning. Um, The gospel that I requested today is is a reading that's very near and dear to my heart, and uh, it reveals the heart of our Heavenly Father for us here this morning. John chapter 17 is a chapter that's commonly known as our Lord's High Priestly Prayer. It immediately precedes our Lord's betrayal and crucifixion. It's a prayer for himself, for his disciples, and for those who will come to faith. Our Lord lifts us up in this most dire hour of his ministry here on earth. It's a prayer for unity. It's a prayer that we may be one. And as a preacher and and commentator Warren Wearsby notes, it's perhaps the most important prayer in scripture for that very reason. This is a prayer given before our Lord's betrayal and crucifixion. So what is our Lord praying here? Well, through this chapter, our Lord begins, as I say, praying for himself in verses one to five. Um, He prays that in this final hour he may display his father's love for the world and that his humiliation, his suffering on the cross, may ultimately result in his glory. As R.A. Torrey reminds us, a prayer for yourself is not necessarily a selfish prayer. Here our Lord prays that his father's love would be on display in this hour. Jesus prays for his disciples as well in verse 6 to 19, pardon me to keep them holy and separate from the evil in the world, that their love for one another would reflect the love that Jesus and his Father share, and that they may have joy in proclaiming the gospel, and finally that they may be sanctified in the word of God. In this final section of the prayer, which is our gospel reading this morning, Jesus prays for those who will believe through his disciples' word. 
So those who will come to faith, those who will receive the hope of the gospel through the ministry of the disciples and by extension the ministry of the disciples' disciples and the disciples' disciples' disciples through the ages even until today. So in a real way, this is our, this is our Lord's prayer for Christ church this morning. It's a prayer for you and I, those who have received the gospel through the ministry of Christ's disciples, us future believers. It's a prayer even for us on this Super Bowl Sunday. And so what is our Lord's prayer for us? Our Lord's prayer is that we today would be one. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us who are gathered here? Well, it means that we would share in Jesus' unity, we will share in Jesus' glory, and that we may share in Jesus' love. What I want to see in our passage today is that this oneness, being one in Christ, our Lord's heart for us this morning, is that we would share in his glory, or share in his unity, share in his glory, and share in his love. And before we dive in, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this gospel reading today. I thank you for our Lord's high priestly prayer that in this hour he has lifted us up to you in prayer. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to these words and that our hearts would be tuned to your own heart, Heavenly Father. I pray that we would be one. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our Lord prays that we would be one. And this oneness means unity, sharing in Christ's unity, sharing in his glory, and sharing in his love. What does it mean to share in Christ's unity? Well, let's look at verses 20 and 21. I do not ask, our Lord prays, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays that we would be one, just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. So what does he mean by that? Now, I want to highlight this phrase, just as. I think this is the key phrase for us to see here. What does it mean to be united in the Father and the Son? Well, just as indicates that our union with each other and with God in Christ is of the same kind that Jesus shares with his heavenly Father. It is of that same intimate nature there. So this means that we're in for a little bit of Trinitarian theology this early in the sermon. And when I was doing my uh, theological education, my, my dear professor warned me that you know preaching anything to do with the Trinity, when you want to approach the unfathomable mystery of who God is, is always going to be a minefield. So if I come out with you know more than three heresies, I guess I'll, I'll buy you all an ice cream or something. But I'm going to I'm going to strive to keep it biblical. So just as right. So what we understand, what we know to be true of of Christ as it's, as he's revealed in Scripture is that Christ is not just like God, but Jesus is God. He is God the Son. And so we need to consider that he is of the same being as God the Father and and God the Holy Spirit. These aren't three separate competing gods with lowercase g, but they share an everlasting communion of being and love with one another. 
And so we consider the creed that we just confessed, that we believe in Jesus Christ, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And a more traditional rendering could say of one substance with the Father, but the idea remains the same, that Jesus and his Father share a oneness, share a unity together. They are perfect communion of love. And so this means that there's no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. And so what do I mean by that? Because I want, I want you to understand what I mean by that when I'm saying what I'm not saying. Here's, here's kind of the mental image that comes to mind. So you all know the film, you all know um, The Wizard of Oz, right? And Dorothy and her companions, they finally make it to the Emerald City, right? And they're standing before the great and all-powerful wizard, right? But what, what's the truth that they find concealed behind this wizard? That really there's a rather pitiful man kind of hiding behind the curtain, working the mechanism to make this wizard work. I hope I just didn't spoil the Wizard of Oz for all y'all, but it's, it's been out for a while, so y'all need to see it. But, um, but the, the truth they find is that this, this all-powerful wizard, this revelation of who the wizard is, really is just a misdirection. It's concealing the truth of what's really going on here. And what we want to see is that's not what's happening in the person of Jesus Christ in his ministry. Jesus didn't come to misdirect us, right? Pay no attention to the Father behind the curtain, but rather Jesus comes to reveal his Father's heart to us. He comes to make God present with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He comes to reveal God's very heart for us. So when we're united to God in Christ, we can confess what the Athanasian Creed says, our oft-forgotten creed that we confess. When we say we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, that's because God himself is a communion of persons, persons in perfect unity, and we worship God according to this unity, and indeed we're made to share in the very life of this unity itself. Jesus has come to reveal the heart of his Father, and Jesus has come to invite us to participate in that very Trinitarian life. It's an invitation to delight in the Trinity. But if we're not God, which we're not, how can we be united to him just as the Father is united to the Son, we see in John chapter 17? Well, this is the role of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. One commentator writes, because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within them, that is the future disciples, you and I, the Father and the Son dwell with them also, and they dwell in the Father and the Son. So this means that our union with God is much more than kind of sharing a a kind of voluntary association with God, kind of sharing some common morality or sharing common interests or similar goals, but rather our union with God, our union with God in Christ is vital. It is deeply profound and spiritual. It is a vital union with God. And scripture only approaches this in powerful metaphors, the, the kind of vital union that we share with God. We are the vine, or he is the vine. We are the branches. We see that in John 15, just two chapters earlier. We are the building. He is the cornerstone. We are the members of the body, and he is its head. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We are the bride, and he is the groom, Ephesians chapter 5. So in other words, we're invited to participate in this very real relational unity that the Father and the Son share in the union of the Holy Spirit through all eternity. We've been invited to share in that same life of love that the Father and Son share. So this is why we pray during our Eucharistic prayer that we may be made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. See, this is the heart of the gospel here, that God has reconciled us sinners to share 
uh, and share himself, to share in his life, in his love, and in his blessing, God is inviting us to participate in that very life and love of, of the Trinity. And what else can we do but worship him? And indeed, the desired result that we see in this passage, the what does it mean for us, is evangelism. We see in verse 21, the purpose is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our unity, our union with God in Christ is purpose with drawing the world into God's own life and love. Just as we've been made partakers of eternal life, so does our witness draw the world into this gospel mystery. Our union, our union with God in Christ is something beautiful that is, that is attractional. It draws people to this mystery. It draws people to the love of God in Christ Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would share in his unity. Jesus also prays that we would be one and share in his glory. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus shares the glory of God with us. And what do we talk about when we talk about the the glory of God? A lot of theology textbooks, I think, will say something along the lines of, of the glory of God is his insurmountable, his unparalleled splendor, renown, and magnificence. It is God's overwhelming majesty. When I was doing children's ministry up in Ottawa, I was doing a lesson on, on the glory of God, trying to explain it to, uh, to these kiddos. And I talked to Father Paul. We were serving up there together. And, and I said, you know, how do you explain that? And he shared what he does in student ministry, or pardon me, in children's ministry, is he, he describes God's glory as God's kind of shininess. It's his overwhelming shininess. And there's something about that that resonates with me, right? It's his overwhelming, unparalleled shininess, his magnificence, his brilliance, his splendor. So what, what do we think about his glory? When I think about this in Scripture, I'm... Often, I'm quickest to think of God's presence to his people in Israel in the wilderness, right? We can think of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in Exodus 13, this powerful image of God's presence in the midst of his people, his glorious presence. We can think of Moses' dialogue with God later on in Exodus chapter 33, where, where Moses asks God to show me your glory. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says, no one can see my face and live. No one can behold my full glory and hope to live. That's overwhelming splendor. And I also think of the transfiguration, this profound and intimate moment where Peter, James, and John have this glimpse, this foretaste of Christ's overwhelming eternal glory that he shares with the Father in all of eternity. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about glory, this overwhelming splendor and magnificence? Where do we go to find that? And I want us to notice what Jesus says. What, when he talks about glory in verse 22, what's he saying here? I want us to consider verse 1, how Jesus begins this prayer. Verse 1 of chapter 17. The fa- he, Jesus begins this prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So at this hour, the Son will be glorified but what's happening at this hour? This hour, the hour has come for what? Well, immediately following this discourse, as I've said, Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. 
And yet in this very hour, of which our Lord is well aware, he's praying that the Father will glorify him. So Jesus prays at the cross, this brutal Roman instrument of humiliation and torturous execution would serve to glorify him, and by glorifying him, glorify the Father. How is he doing that? Why is he praying that? Well, in verse 23, Jesus prays that so that the world may know that you have loved them, the Father has loved us, even as you have loved me. So if we know from Scripture that God is love, and we can rightly say that all glory belongs to God, then perhaps we can indeed say that God's glory is most revealed where his love is as well. And that's no other place than the cross of Jesus Christ. If we want to behold the glory of God, we need to look nowhere else than the cross of Jesus Christ. As our Lord said earlier in John's gospel, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Saints, in Christ we are made friends, and even more than that, sons and daughters of the Most High God. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us, to, for, um, predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. At the cross, God displays his love for his disciples and the world. He puts his glory on display. It's a love, a glory that suffers for our redemption and assures us of the promise of salvation in Christ. And this is the promise we see in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Our hope is that one day, we will be present with the Lord in his eternal kingdom and share in this everlasting glory. That's exactly the hope that Christ secures for us on the cross. We cling to the hope of the cross because we know that in this world we will have trouble. In fact, Jesus assures his disciples of this fact just one passage earlier, just the immediate passage preceding this discourse. And we know that if we are to share in his glory, as Paul reminds us in, in Romans 8, we must first share in his suffering. The cross is our hope that we too who face great trial and tribulation for Jesus' sake will one day share in Christ's everlasting glory. So as the old hymn goes, I will cherish the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. That's our hope. That's our hope for glory. We cling to nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. For those of us here who, who face trials and tribulations of all kinds in this life, our hope is in the cross. Our hope is that one day our Lord will bring us with him to his everlasting kingdom. We will share in this unity with God and Christ and, and by that share in his glory. Jesus prays we would share in the unity of Father and Son. We, Jesus prays that we would share in, in his glory. And finally, Jesus prays that we would share in his love. Verse 25, O righteous Father, our Lord prays, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, things, and, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So we notice this word know is being repeated uh, a few different times. This, this word know in the sense of knowing God. Um, 
And, and what I want us to notice, if it's being repeated here, I want us to, to consider two different senses in which someone can be known. There's kind of a, an objective and, and, um, and kind of propositional sense of, of knowing someone. There's also kind of a personal and subjective sense of knowing someone. So here's what I mean by that. So it's the difference between asking me, you know, do you know your wife? And I might say, well, yes, I know Rachel very well. I know that she was born in Maryland. I know that she has blonde hair, that she's five foot two, and I know that her favorite kind of ice cream is all the kinds. <laughs> and those are important things to know about your wife. But you might, you might just as well say, well, you know, if w Rachel had a Wikipedia page, you could read all those things about Rachel. You could just kind of have that, you know, that kind of cognitive knowledge of Rachel. And you go, well, that's true. And so you might say, well, do you know your wife? And in a real way, I know my wife in, in such a sense that with one look, she could destroy my world or make me feel like a million bucks. And that's a kind of personal knowledge that only comes with that very personal encounter, that, that kind of intimate communion with someone. And we might feel the same way towards our closest friends or our family. That kind of personal knowledge that changes you, right, and shapes who you are. So if, you're gonna, so if, so if we ask, you know, what is, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about knowing the Father? Is he talking about a, a propositional sense or a personal sense? We have to kind of rightly say, well, both right? Both inform each other. And this is what Jesus is getting at, this kind of integrated knowledge of God, both propositional and personal, when he prays in verse 17 that we would be sanctified in the truth, noting that his Father's word is truth, that we would have the propositional knowledge of God to know what is true of him and what is not, but also that we would know him personally. And this is what Jesus means by name in verse 26. He's made his name known to us, his character, right, his person, who he is for us. Jesus reveals true knowledge of God, both propositional but also personal as well. He's made him known as our heavenly Father. In Christ, we truly fully know who God is, praise fully and truly revealed in Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we receive the word together, and as we receive the Eucharist together today, and when we confess the creed together, we do so united in faithfulness to God, who we know in Jesus Christ. So what's the desired result of knowing God? What does this mean for you and I today, both propositionally and personally knowing God? What does this mean for us today? Well, Jesus continues on to pray that the love with which you have loved me, that the Father has loved the Son, may be in them and I in them. See, we know God not to just gain factoid knowledge of who he is, but we know God that we may share in his love. Just as I know my wife or my best friend or my family, I know them to share in that relationship of love. So too do we share in that relationship of love that, uh, that, that God extends to us in Christ. As Jesus says in, in John 13, 25, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's why when we withhold love, or if we're, if we're resentful, or bitter, or jealous, or angry, and we let that fester towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will hinder our witness, and we will cut off our union and our oneness. God in Christ has reconciled us sinners to himself, and now we ought to live the same way towards each other. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation.
We are therefore heralds of good news, ambassadors for Christ that announce God's love in reconciling sinners to himself. So how are we doing? How's our unified witness this morning? Perhaps this is a call for some of us to live in accordance with that call from God, to live in tune with his heart for us here this morning, that we may be one and live as those who are reconciled to one another and love each other in Jesus Christ just as he loves us. Let us confess our sins, forgive one another, that we can live together in the peace of Christ and be a faithful witness of God's reconciling love to the world. So what is Jesus' prayer for us at Christ Church here this morning? Jesus prays that we would be one, that we would be one and share in his unity, that we be united in Christ, sharing in the life and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that we would be empowered for mission and witness to the world, that we would be one and share in his glory, the unparalleled splendor, renown, magnificence, shininess of God, and of God's immeasurable love displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And indeed, hopeful that one day we too will be present with Christ in the glory of his everlasting kingdom. And finally, that we may be one and share in his love, knowing God as he's revealed himself by his word in Jesus Christ, and loving one another with the reconciling love that God has shown to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.